Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The next day... I had my follow-up with the GP and I saw my regular GP and as I walked into her room, she's gone, I'm really sorry, Tony. And I said, what are you sorry about? She goes, you've had a stroke. So it was actually six days later after my stroke that we found out that I'd had one. A girlfriend had taken me out for a coffee at one of our local cafes and whilst we were there, I then had a TIA. And with that TIA, I had the typical fast symptoms. So the facial drop, the speech was going. And so she called for an ambulance straight away. I've since had two further TIAs as well. And each time I've had a TIA, I've been left with deficits. So usually when people have a TIA, they say that there's no long lasting effect. But with each of mine, I've actually had leftover effects from them. So whether it's that my balance has got a bit worse, my speech has got worse, things have got worse with each of those. I considered myself quite lucky to come out of it the way that I did. So I'd say that I'm a lucky, unlucky person because it has had such an impact on my life. I have days where I am in tears or I'm upset about something. So those days do happen, but on the whole, I am positive about it. Hello, this is Stroke Stories. I'm Mark Goodyear. A transient ischemic attack, otherwise known as the TIA or mini-stroke, happens when the blood supply to the brain is interrupted temporarily. A TIA can often be a precursor to a major stroke, so should be treated just as seriously. In Australia, in 2015, TIAs were reported as associated causes in 1,000 deaths. A stroke is often sudden and it can be devastating. Health services these days are pretty good with diagnosis and treatment after a stroke, but patients often find that there aren't enough resources to help them on their journey to recovery. So here is Stroke Stories, the podcast where we seek out and hear from stroke survivors. In this podcast, we hear from Tony Arforis, a former teacher who suffered a stroke at the age of 46. Prior to my stroke, I was a primary school teacher. I was in my sixth year of teaching. I had three children aged from 16 to 20. I was heavily involved in volunteering as well. So I was on a couple of school council committees. We've got a holiday house down by the beach. So we'd go down to that on a, quite a few weekends. And sometimes, you know, during school holidays, we'd go down there during that time as well. On the day of my stroke, stroke we were down at our beach house and about six o'clock in the morning I got up to feed our dog and let her out so I did that I went to the toilet and I've washed my hands and as I've gone to walk out of the toilet I felt the sight I remember having this feeling of looking down on myself 
I got back up, but because we had stairs around the other side of the door of the toilet, I felt a bit disorientated, so I didn't want to walk out in case I fell down those stairs. So I called for my husband, Nick, to come and help me get back to bed, which he did. I felt a little bit sick, so I said, look, baby, get me a bucket or something just in case. That was really about the extent of how I was feeling. I had a very tiny headache. Earlier in that year, I'd had a severe case of gastro where I ended up in hospital for 10 days. And being school holidays and being a teacher, it's like, okay, you get sick on school holidays. So I just thought, okay, I'm just coming back down with this bug or whatever it was that made me so sick last time. I then spent the day in bed. My head felt heavy for my neck. That's probably the best way to describe it. And I just felt really tired. And so I slept pretty well all day. We didn't know that anything was going on. Um, I hadn't lost any sensation as such. I didn't have any of the typical stroke symptoms. I had an appointment to see the osteopath on the Friday. Because of my neck feeling a bit funny, I just thought it was because I had missed my previous appointment. And I thought, oh, well, I'm just overdue for that. So I actually went and saw the osteopath on the Friday, told her what had happened, and she said she wanted to do some basic neurological tests on me, which she did. After doing those, she said, look, I can't see that there's anything wrong with you. She goes, I'll just do a, you know, a very gentle treatment on you and see how you go. And, if you, of course, if you don't get better or whatever, then go and see your GP. So she did her magic, and I actually did feel a little bit better. I still, though, was extremely sleepy, like really just wanting to sleep all the time and feeling, like I said, a bit sick, but nothing over the top or anything. When we left our holiday place, I drove home because I suffered from really severe motion sickness anyway. And so I thought if I'm a passenger in the car, there's no way I'm going to feel good being a passenger. So I actually drove as well. So I saw the osteopath on the Sunday. My husband said he thought he should take me to the emergency department because I wasn't getting any better. And I said, don't be stupid. You know, they're only for emergencies, not for silly little things. Um, And I'll see my doctor on the Monday if I wasn't any better. So on the Monday, we rang up to go and see my doctor. My usual GP wasn't available. So I saw one of the other doctors where I go and he did the same neurological test that the osteopath had done. And by that stage, I'd actually lost a bit of sensation in parts of my face and arms and things and had a little bit of weakness on my left-hand side as well. So he said, I'm going to ring around to get you in to go and have an MRI. So he did that and got me booked in for one the next day, gave me the referral form. And when I looked on the referral form, he'd actually put down possible MS. The next day I went for the MRI and they've said to me, look, they'll do an MRI. They may, if they need to, do a CT scan as well, but you won't know that until they've actually done the MRI. So I did the MRI. They didn't say anything. So we started coming home and stopped off at Ikea to have a coffee on the way home. As we're sitting to have our coffee, my phone rang and it was the radiologist saying, we need you to come back. We need to do the CT scan. And I said, why? And they said, well, there's something on your brain. And I said, what do you mean there's something on my brain? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. And it was like they thought they shouldn't have said that. They just wanted to get me back. So they got me back, still didn't tell me anything. So the next day I had my follow-up with the GP and I saw my regular GP. And as I've walked into her room, she's gone, I'm really sorry, Tony. And I said, what are you sorry about? And she goes, you've had a stroke. So it was actually 
six days later after my stroke that we found out that I'd had one. Although Tony had suffered a stroke, the initial after effects were not serious enough for her to need treatment. I didn't go to hospital at all. I think because at the time, like apart from a bit of weakness and just the fatigue, that was pretty well all that was showing. And so I was just recovering at home. In the November, I actually tried returning to work one day a week and then two days a week and things like that. But after a couple of weeks of doing that, a girlfriend had taken me out for a coffee at a, one of our local cafes and whilst we were there I then had a TIA and with that TIA I had the typical fast symptoms so the facial drop the speech was going and so she called for an ambulance straight away and so I got rushed off to hospital they of course did an MRI again and it came up that no I hadn't had a stroke so it was actually a TIA that I'd had but the thing with that one was that the neurologist then turned around and told me that even if I had had another stroke they wouldn't have been able to use the clot busting treatment because of the size of my original stroke it had actually been quite big. Despite suffering two strokes just months apart Tony's experience with stroke wasn't over yet. I've since had two further TIAs as well and each time I've had a TIA I've been left with deficits. So usually when people have a TIA, they say that there's no long-lasting effect. But with each of mine, I've actually had leftover effects from them. So whether it's that my balance has got a bit worse, my speech has got worse, things have got worse with each of those. But it ended up that the fatigue that I suffered was really major after my original stroke and then again after the TIA. So with trying to go back to work, I'd work the one day and then have to sleep all of the next day and maybe some of the day after that as well just to recover from that. After that first TIA, I then went and did physio because my balance was quite bad and because of the left-sided weakness that I'd been left with. So I I, um, was doing physio with that. Part of my physio then was that I went on to doing Pilates, which was an hour session. And again, the fatigue that I was left with was really major so I'd have my Pilates session come home and just sleep I couldn't walk or talk properly afterwards so from both my stroke and subsequent TIAs I suffer from sensory overload which means that whilst now I'm talking okay and I'm functioning fine as soon as there's excess noise and when I say excess noise it can just be multiple conversations in the same room It can be the wind that blows when I'm walking. It actually then causes my brain to go haywire and I can't talk properly. I can't walk properly. I get what's called left side neglect, which means that I lose my left hand side. So when we didn't understand what was going on, I could go to the shops and, you know, I can only be at the shops for a little while before all this happens. But I'd get this left side neglect, which then means I'd walk into things on my left hand side because I couldn't see them. Having suffered a major stroke and a number of TIAs, Tony wants to help contribute towards our understanding of the illness. I've always been a bit of a Pollyanna, so, you know, trying to find the bright side of things. Um, One of the best things I did after my stroke was I decided that I'd get involved in being a research participant as much as possible on things that were suitable for me. 
And in Melbourne, we were really lucky that they were doing research on trying to help with fatigue. And I signed up for that. And that actually involved sessions with a neuropsych. And she was fantastic because she actually explained things so that I understood what was going on. And one of the first things she said to me was that I like I had actually thought that when I um, was lying on the couch and I might have the TV on in the background, she said, you're actually not giving your brain a chance to rest then because it's still getting all that stimulus from other places. So I actually needed to have total silence. So that helped with that. When I was talking to the neuropsych, one of the things she said to me was that she was amazed at how positive I was about the whole thing. She said, seeing what I had been like before, and I was probably what you would call a high achiever and extremely busy, and this had just totally stopped me in my tracks. And she said, people like me are the ones that are usually the prime candidates to suffer depression following a stroke because, you know, depression is quite high amongst stroke survivors. So she said, you know, that was something for me to be aware of. I've gone about it, I think, because I was told that the type of stroke I had had quite a high fatality rate and that, you know, survivors are often left with really major deficits. So I considered myself quite lucky to come out of it the way that I did. So I say that I'm a lucky, unlucky person because it has had such an impact on my life. I have days where I am in tears or I'm upset about something. So those days do happen, but on the whole, I am positive about it. Tony's experience with stroke has left her with a number of disabilities that, at times, make navigating everyday life difficult and uncomfortable. However, she continues to remain positive about her present and her future, and, in participating in local research studies, hopes to contribute to our wider understanding of stroke and its impact on society. Still to come in this episode of Stroke Stories, Tony explains the impact of losing her car on her independence. Whilst it was still my car, it still sort of gave me a, a sense of, oh, I've got some freedom that I could get in there and go somewhere if I wanted, whereas now I've lost that freedom. And so I, even though... I was in this situation before, you know, I'm entirely dependent on other people to take me anywhere, to take me shopping, you know, just to go and buy a loaf of bread. I can't do that by myself. Selling the car really brought that home. And she reveals how her strokes made it possible for her to get back to an old hobby. I'm really lucky that a couple of streets away from me, I have a wildlife artist who's a renowned wildlife artist. She's actually um, the Australian Wildlife Artist of the Year. And she actually gives lessons at her place. So every week I go off for a two-hour lesson. And that is just something that if I hadn't had my stroke, I wouldn't be able to do. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Let's hear how Tony's strokes affected her work life. I've been assessed as never being able to work. 
due to the effects of the sensory overload because you just don't know when it's going to come on and because of how fatigued I get by doing different things. Like I said, I've actually been assessed as never being able to return to work. One of the things that probably had a big impact is that I, even though I have not lost my licence, it's not practical for me to drive because whilst I might be able to drive to get somewhere vocal, as soon as I do anything, then I'm not able to drive home, whether it's due to the fatigue, whether it's due to the left side neglect. So you can imagine if I'm not aware of my left-hand side, I don't see out of my left eye properly. And because my brain's so addled, I forget which is the indicator, which is the wipers and all those sorts of things. I think the fact that I had tried to go back to work and could see that it wasn't working. So I was a classroom teacher, but I was also in a leadership position. And when I went back to work, they didn't put me back in the classroom, but I would occasionally just go and mind a grade so that one of the other teachers could do something. And I could not supervise the grade. I couldn't go out on yard duty. You know, all the general things that you have to do in a school, I was unable to do. So going back just for those couple of days that I tried going back, having to finish work, I was quite at peace with because I could see that it wasn't going to work. I was actually a late starter to teaching. So the year I turned 40 was my first year of becoming a teacher. And in those years of teaching, I had done quite a bit. So I was feeling quite satisfied with what I had accomplished in those years. So I think that all made me feel at peace with not being at work. It was harder having to give up my voluntary work. So I had been with the hall committee, I'd been the secretary and the treasurer, and I had to give those roles up because, you know, as a secretary, I couldn't take minutes anymore. I couldn't follow the conversations that were being held. And the treasurer role, prior to my stroke, I was really good at my spelling and maths, and I lost those skills. So now my spelling can be quite atrocious. And my maths, who knows how I get the answers to questions, because sometimes they're just way off and so you know you can't be a treasurer if you can't key in numbers right or work out equations properly so I had to say goodbye to that. That was quite hard because volunteering was something that I'd always got a lot of personal satisfaction out of. The driving that was really really hard that had quite a few tears but we actually realised after I'd had my first TIA and this is when we started realising this left side neglect was I was reversing my car into our garage and actually didn't see my husband's car in the garage and as I reversed in, I've actually scraped his car a bit. Like I said, it was due to this left side neglect. Um, so that was sort of like a warning of, hang on, I've missed that I'm missing something and it was, you know, like I said, the vision. It was only last year that I've um, sold my car because it's been sitting in the garage all this time and it was really even though my daughter bought it, so it's still sitting in the garage, it was quite emotional to say goodbye to that car. And even though I wasn't using it, whilst it was still my car, it still sort of gave me a a sense of, oh, I've got some freedom that I could get in there and go somewhere if I wanted, whereas now I've lost that freedom. And so even though I was in this situation before, you know, I'm entirely dependent on other people to take me anywhere, to take me shopping, you know, just to go and buy a loaf of bread. I can't do that by myself. Selling the car really brought that home. For Tony, the National Stroke Foundation in Australia gave her an opportunity to make a difference. 
The Stroke Foundation, it's the only charity in Australia that covers all parts of the stroke journey. So the Stroke Foundation have played such a major part in my recovery that I wouldn't be where I am now without them. They have, from the staff that work there through to their online presence, it's just encompassing everything that I've needed to help me keep going. So when I first had my stroke, one of the first things I did was jump online. The first two things I looked up was when can I drive and when can I have sex? The Stroke Foundation is what I jumped onto for those things. And so from there, I then sort of kept going back to their website looking for information. They also have a helpline, which I didn't ring because I sort of found I was getting the answers that I needed from within that online website. And then I discovered that they have this other forum called Enable Me. And Enable Me is a community, it's part of the Stroke Foundation, but it's people can register. You don't have to register for it, but you can register to go on it. And people post questions and they get answered by other stroke survivors, stroke carers, medical staff, and members from the team from the Stroke Foundation. And I found that really helpful because I was a bit of a lurker, first of all, where, you know, I just sit and read other people's blogs or the questions that they were asking. And then I thought, oh, I could actually answer this question. So I actually started answering some other people's questions that they were asking following their strokes. It's a chance to read what other people are going through and realise that what you're experiencing isn't just you that there are other people. So while you might have 100 stroke survivors in a room and some of them might have even had the same type of stroke in the same part of the brain, but the effects can still be different. The deficits that each person's left with can be different. So to be able to talk to such a wide community and see that, hey, what I'm experiencing is part of being a stroke survivor and not just an anomaly, is um, it really is good for the soul sort of to know, yes, you're not alone. I then saw a bit on their page about being what they call the Stroke Safe Ambassador. And Stroke Safe Ambassadors go out into the community and give educational talks on stroke awareness. So, you know, what is a stroke, the signs to look out for and how to prevent it. I thought, well, I think I could do this because it's not a, you know, nine to five commitment. It is just when they get someone saying can we have a speaker out so when they put a call out asking for some more speakers I thought okay I'm going to apply so I did that and did the training and that is now what I do I volunteer as a stroke safe ambassador so it means that sometimes I might have a talk every one or two weeks and sometimes I might not have a talk for a few months but it really gives me a sense of purpose it's really allowed me to combine my love of education with my love of volunteering. So I get to do both of those things together. Despite everything Tony has been through, she strongly feels that she is still the same person. Tony is still Tony. It might be a new Tony, but things like my sense of humour have changed. So whereas, you know, before I could laugh at jokes quite a lot, I actually can find it hard to understand them and that. I still love life and want to get out and walk and do all the things that I used to do before. It's just that now I have to do them with this new reality of planning things 
so that I don't overcrowd my day or myself and I give myself time to rest and to just relax. I'm really lucky that a couple of streets away from me, I have a wildlife artist who's a renowned wildlife artist. She's actually um, the Australian Wildlife Artist of the Year and she actually gives lessons at her place. So every week I go off for a two-hour lesson and that is just something that if I hadn't had my stroke, I wouldn't be able to do. Having my stroke, one of the worst things about it was finding out that people that I thought were good friends actually couldn't cope with me having a stroke. I don't think it was a purposeful thing on their behalf. I think it was just that while I say, yes, I'm still Tony, there are things that are different. And like I said, I'm reliant on other people to be able to do anything. I can't just say, look, let's meet up at the cafe for dinner or let's go out to a musical or something like that because I actually need assistance for all those things and I need assistance to get there. And I think for some people to see me going from the busy social person that I was and also like I was, you know, I was quite often the organiser. So to see me going from that to being having to rely on others to be able to do those things, I think was hard for them to see that. The friendship side has been really hard. And because I am reliant on other people, that does create a sense of isolation. Just because I've had a stroke doesn't mean that everybody else's life has stopped from what it was as well. So they've still got to go on with their lives and, you know, they're still working and doing all the things they did before. So I obviously can't do those things. And so there is that little sense of isolation Aside from the friends that I did sort of lose along the way, I've also been very grateful for the friends that have stayed with me and allowed me to, they've catered for my um, disabilities. So, you know, whether it's when they come over and they understand that I might have to go and have a sleep or just take myself out to a quiet space for five, ten minutes. And also if we have gone out, they know that when we go somewhere, I appear perfectly normal, but the music or noise that is there, like that sensory overload kicks in. So then they actually sort of take on a bit of a care role in having to help me get out of venues and to the car and they know that I can't talk and all of that. So they've been fantastic the way that they have allowed for that. And as well as those friends that have stayed that um the journey there's also been the new ones that are made along the way so they haven't known pre-stroke Tony they've only known post-stroke Tony and that's been interesting as well sort of like when I'll say something about you know before I used to be able to do this and they're like oh okay so that's a part of me that they just aren't aware of because I have a disability sticker for my car and things like that and people will look at me and say no, she doesn't have a, you know, there's nothing wrong with that person. Look at her getting out of the car because it's my disabilities are, you know, invisible disabilities. It's people feel like sometimes they can have a go at you for doing things that they don't think you should do, such as, like I said, you know, parking in a disabled parking spot where I've actually had people challenge me on doing that. And it's like you have to justify yourself. But some of those friends have actually been there sometimes and sort of been able to step in or just silence what's going to be said or where it's going so you know there's some 
great people out there that have really been helpful and continue to see that, yes, I, I am still the same person. Tony's strokes continue to fade into the past and she wants to focus now on doing things that she enjoys most. My thing is that because I haven't improved my deficits anymore, I expect that there'll still be very, very slight improvements. So for me, it is just about living life and loving what you're doing. So like I said, you know, with my art, that is something that I absolutely love doing. I love spending time with my husband and kids and like, you know, like I said, they're adults, like they're actually in their 20s, all in their 20s now, spending time with them and seeing them create their own family. So we get starting to get going back to our beach house a bit more. I absolutely love getting out and walking, bushwalking. So to do those sorts of things. So we actually, last year we did our very first overseas holiday and we actually went to the UK and we spent, I think, seven and a half weeks going around the all of the UK, Scotland and all of Wales and just did so much walking while we did that. And coming up, we're, you know, we're going to the Northern Territory to go up there for a couple of weeks again to do lots of walking. So to me, that's what I love doing is getting out, walking, taking photos and then coming back and drawing some of the wildlife that I've seen. And Tony's advice is to trust that you can recover from stroke. Firstly, I would say believe in yourself. Believe that you can continue, that you haven't lost yourself. You are still that person. You come to sort of see life as pre-stroke and post-stroke, but regardless of that, you are still that person in there. So don't lose sight of who you are. Connect with other stroke survivors. And like I know the Stroke Foundation and, as I said, Enable Me, you know, because they're online, they're accessible all over the world. And Enable Me is something that I would really encourage people to look into. Even if they're five, ten years down from having a stroke, jump on and have a look at it because you might be surprised by what you read, what you see and just how it makes you feel. And remember that you can still smile. Having a stroke, the effects that it's had have been totally life-changing for me. Having a stroke doesn't mean that everything ends. You can find your way out from it. Tony's been through an incredibly tough experience. With each TIA she suffered, her recovery was set back again and again. However, after making progress since her last mini-stroke, she's focused her energy on spending more time with family, keeping active and spreading awareness of stroke through her work with the Australian Stroke Foundation. If you're listening to this podcast because you've had a stroke or maybe somebody close to you has and you'd like to learn more, search for the Stroke Association online. For a dedicated webpage, search NHS Strokes. And if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe to the series, rate and comment because that will help us spread the word. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.